Kevin Silva set me up last week. We've talked about this before. I was on the Ross Tucker podcast. It was supposed to be with Evan, but Evan couldn't make it. So it was just Ross and I having a conversation. But before Evan fled the premises, he gave Ross Tucker a list of marching orders. Hey, here are some agenda topics. Here are some things you should hit Matt Kelly with. And one of the the disagreements that Evan and I have frequently is the how much credit should be attributed to the coach for on-field performance. How much should we weigh which coach is on the sidelines when we're making fantasy decisions? Evan and I disagree on this often. And so he knew that he and Ross shared a belief in the coach being the reason why the performances happen. So he fed my take to Ross and said, Hey, Ross, like red meat to a wolf, go get him. He doesn't think coaches matter. So that was one of the first questions that Ross hit me with on the Feast podcast last week. And basically, I just explained, Hey, Ross, I don't think any coach has any particular play-calling black magic. Kyle Shanahan doesn't have any secret plays that might help Tevin Coleman. But I still like Tevin Coleman. And Ross Tucker agreed. Ross explained that he believes that the offensive coordinator's greatest contribution to the offense is calling the right mix of run run plays and pass plays having good instincts to catch the defense off guard. That's an important role that the offensive coordinator plays, and that can help player performance, that can help fantasy teams. And I agreed with that. That was a good argument, and that was a good segment. We just, he said, I said something, he agreed. I said something, he agreed. I love agreement. I don't like argument radio. That's part of the reason why we do a show, just me, It's because I don't, feel the need to argue with others. But I only was able to get out that one point that, hey, there's no play-calling black magic, but I had more to say on that topic, but it was, you know, we only had 20 minutes and there were many things that we had to talk about, so we had to move on. So in this show, I'm going to take an opportunity to fully answer the question about How much credit should the coach be getting? So, let's start. This is a depth perspective. Those of you that are new to the show, once in a while, will veer away from the the standard going down the list of players that are in the news and talking about them. Rather, we'll focus just on one specific topic and we'll dive deep. That's what we're going to do in this show. This is only going to be a show about how much coaching matters and the coach-player relationship and how the fans and fantasy gamers and the media, how they perceive the contribution of the coach to overall team success or overall team failure. Now, the larger problem is, as I've lamented before, some coaches get a disproportionate amount of the credit when things go well. Most coaches do. The problem is that crowds out the credit that should go to the actual performers, the players who are risking their health to change the pixels on the scoreboard in their coach's favor. 
They're the ones that should be getting more credit. The coach should be getting less credit. It's also a funny switch that we do where the coach only sometimes gets a disproportionate amount of the blame when teams fail. Sometimes when teams fail, like the Washington Redskins last season, almost all of the blame lands on the player. Whereas if Washington had succeeded last year, Jay Gruden would have received a large share of the credit. And that, to me, is maddening. Because who decides this? Who decides who gets the credit? People like Brian Baldinger and Sterling Sharp, that's who. This is what's frustrating to me, this fickle king-making role that we've entrusted the sports media with. It is, it's fickle. Because I saw Brian Schottenheimer last season call multiple courageous, well-timed trick plays that resulted in first downs. And yet, he's still a punchline. Why? I don't know. The media makes these decisions. Mike Martz, Brian Billick. They ran successful offenses for many years and won Super Bowls. Now they are punchlines. Todd Haley coordinated a top NFL offense just last year. And he's still a punchline. Why? I don't know. I don't make these decisions. We and the media were just fickle about which offensive coordinators we decide are going to get the credit and which ones are going to get the blame. And it, it's arbitrary. And many times it's irrational. It's based on things that have no bearing on on-field success, like how the coach looks, how the coach acts, how much does he yell, how affable is he in the press conference afterward. Those things matter. Those things drive how the credit is dispersed between the players and the coaches. And yes, that's very frustrating to me. It is. And in fantasy football, how this manifests itself, this problem, this irrational problem that I've perceived, is that we are inundated now with articles recounting a coach's history of fantasy production. He has a history of running back production. This coach has a history of getting the most out of his wide receiver ones. Attributing credit for fantasy points to the coach. But every single fantasy article that focuses on the coach being the reason for this fa for, for the fantasy points being scored, all of those articles run head on into a correlation versus causation problem. And just recently, I read this about new Washington coach, offensive coordinator Bill Callahan on Roto World. It read as follows. New Redskins offensive line coach Bill Callahan has coached four top nine rushing attacks over the last six seasons. These are the types of coach-related fantasy news bites that fantasy gamers are inundated with during the offseason and during the regular season. I can't tell you how much is wrong with that blurb. 
actually, wait, actually, I can tell you, there are exactly four things that I find wrong with that blurb. Number one, it's a correlation versus causation trap. Number two, it's a highly arbitrary data range. Why not top ten rushing attack? Why top nine? Well, because top nine helps prove our point. We're, we're backing into this statistic, so we'll carve out the data range that confirms our bias the most, that Bill Callahan is the reason. The funniest thing to me about this is that part of the reason for Callahan's success was, in fact, coaching philosophy, but not his! It was Rex Ryan's ground-and-pound, slow-the-clock-down, defensive, ball-control philosophy that cranked up the rushing volume that, ca- that accounted for Callahan's sterling rushing numbers. Well, his running back's sterling rushing numbers. You see, Bill Callahan doesn't actually play the game. Callahan is not a player. I know that's obvious. But I always feel like I have to throw that fact out there. In these all the credit goes to the coach type conversations. Or at least a disproportionate amount of the credit should go to the coach. Because many people that you talk to in sports media, in fantasy football, they believe that. And my frustration with attributing credit to coaches, making them the reason for success and failure is that I usually have no means of tying proof of causation back to the coach. I don't have empirical evidence that the coach is the reason. Therefore, I must default back to a baseline assumption that it's the player's ability. Octum's razor, the simplest answer is the simplest theory is the easiest theory to prove. So my assumption is that the player's ability, my theory is the player's ability, is the reason for the on-field productivity inefficiency. Largely. Less, more than most people believe. The coach is less of the reason than most people believe. The coach matters. I mean, I do believe the coach matters. So this blanket statement that Matt Kelly doesn't think the coach matters, that's false. I just believe that the coach's contribution to on-field performances shows up on the margins as opposed to being the main driver of the outcomes, which this Bill Callahan blurb suggests. I just, I object to this false idolization of coaches, specifically if you want to talk about it within a fantasy context, because with fantasy games, the over-attribution of credit for the outcome of athletic performances going to the coach, that leads to suboptimal fantasy decision-making. Last year, we overspent on Torrey Smith because of Gary Kubiak and what he did with Andre Johnson. We overspent on Lance Dunbar because of Scott Linehan and what he did in Detroit. In retrospect, those moves were foolish. Drafting Torrey Smith where we did was foolish. Drafting Lance Dunbar where we did was foolish. But we believe those coach-centric arguments because they were posited by some of the most respected fantasy writers in the industry. 
This is a contrarian viewpoint that I have. Almost no one believes what I believe. I'm alone out here on this one. But again, I'm not saying coaching doesn't matter. I agree. The coach does have some marginal role in determining, specifically for fantasy, the coach has a marginal role in determining volume. And that matters in a fantasy football context. So, for example, Chip Kelly's emphasis on up-tempo, which the NFL as a league has since largely copied, enabled the Eagles to run more plays than they would have without Chip Kelly in 2013 and 2014. But how many plays? I have no idea. A few, at least. Okay. So that matters. Even though Mark Trestman has coached some of the best pass-catching running backs over the last 20 years, it's indisputable that Mark Trestman helped a running back named Derek Lavelle, who I had to look up his stats. Derek Laville caught 87 balls in 1995 with Mark Tressman as his offensive coordinator. It's indisputable. It's clear that if you're a running back, you are going to catch more footballs if Mark Tressman is your offensive coordinator. I believe that. Because I believe that the running back typically shows up earlier in the read progressions of the offensive systems that Mark Tressman implements for his teams. So that equates to more running back pass-catching volume. That matters for fantasy. But how much does it matter? Well, I don't know exactly. We can't really measure it. I think Justin Forsett, best case, gets one extra target a game because of Tressman. And if he stays healthy for a full season, that's 16 extra targets. It's not a major difference. But yes, there is a marginal PPR advantage for Forsett because Mark Tressman is his coach. The coach matters on the margins. There are a couple niche situations where you can empirically demonstrate precisely how a coach impacts opportunity volume in a fantasy context. But you wouldn't think it's just a niche. You wouldn't think it's just a marginal impact. The way coaches are heralded as the underlying reason for a team's success. The underlying reason for the fantasy output. Chip Kelly's offense is the reason. It matters, but it's certainly not the full reason. It's a small fraction of the reason, actually. And I know that I'm alone on this, because even new writers for playerprofiler.com, they now are proposing articles that confuse cause and effect, that attribute the success for individual performances to the coach. Someone recently proposed a piece on Bruce Arians, and how Bruce Arians makes all the difference for John Brown. And that Bruce Arians is the reason why you should be buying John Brown in Dynasty. And I rejected that article idea. <laughs> I, said, I came back and I said, well, 
Bruce Arians didn't even get the most out of T.Y. Hilton. That was Pep Hamilton. Bruce Arians didn't even get the most out of Antonio Brown. That was Todd Haley. But Pep Hamilton and Todd Haley are punchlines. They're not talked about in the major sport by the major sports media platforms as being the reason for success. So why should we write a fantasy article about Pep Hamilton or Todd Haley? Ew! Ew! Whatever genius Pep Hamilton and Todd Haley have, it doesn't count. Ew. So when I challenged this writer, he came very back at me. He said, well, the reason I picked up Charles Johnson was because of Norv Turner. Norv Turner has a, a track record of turning players like Josh Gordon into stars. And I said, Norv Turner? Norv Turner, the same guy that Vincent Jackson had to get away from before he could truly ascend. Norv Turner, the guy that severely throttled Vincent Jackson's targets, squandering Vincent Jackson's age apex in fantasy football. That Norv Turner? Really? But, I mean, again, people have latched onto this idea that the coach is the reason. So he kept, the writer kept coming back at me with new twists and new ideas for why coaches matter. And so I ended it with this. Tony Dungy and Tom Moore's offense in Indianapolis was historically epic, right? Tony Dungy and Tom Moore must have implemented a very QB-friendly system with some innovative offensive framework in place, right? No! Tony Dungy was a former defensive coordinator. And the Colts had Peyton Manning during that time. That was the reason. The end. It's a correlation trap. That example I just gave you strikes to the heart of the correlation trap that the coach worshippers always fall into. Like Joaquin Phoenix's character fell for Philip Seymour Hoffman's gibberish in the movie The Master. When you are under the spell of the coach hype master, even the most ridiculous coral the correlas the correlations that you could weave, even no matter how complicated and ridiculous they might seem. Those correlations, when the coach is involved, are testaments of causation, even though they're really not. Kneel before me! I wear the headdress! Or, well, the headset, but eh, never mind. Anyway, I decide who starts and who comes off the bench. I am the coach! I am the Lord! Yes, Bruce Arians is L. Ron Hubbard to the majority of fantasy gamers. It's weird. We can talk about the Colts example. Let's talk about it another way. Let's make it even more ridiculous. Show you how, how this correlation trap works. Did you know that Lucas Oil Stadium has 19 of the last 20 top 10 passing seasons on that stadium's resume? Is that a QB-friendly stadium? Does that stadium have something that helps quarterbacks in the air and the ceiling? Or did that 
stadium just happened to have Peyton Manning and Andrew Luck throwing passes in it over the last 19 of 20 seasons. Hmm. No, 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 no. 19 of 20 seasons. That can't be a coincidence. That can't just be quarterback play, can it? Can it? Lucas Oil Stadium must have been built on sacred football ground. It's a miracle! Lucas Oil Stadium, it's a miracle! Genuflect before entering Lucas Oil Stadium. A football miracle! 19 of 20 top 10 seasons. How could it be possible? Must be a miracle. Touched by God, the hand of God came down, touched the stadium. Or, the Colts got lucky with two first-round picks that became Peyton Manning and Andrew Luck. I don't know, I, I prefer my story about it, the miracle. That's uplifting. The holy stadium. That makes for a better fantasy article. Literally. I mean, Jalen Rose put it perfectly. Coaches have all of the power, none of the control. Which is why they always appear unhappy. They don't have all of the power. I disagree with that. I think the coach shares the power with the player, and the coach has none of the control about what happens on the field. Here, I have some stats for you. So, Roto Underworld Radio, contact the show at Roto Underworld on Twitter. Email the show, rotounderworld at gmail.com. We're all about metrics, so here are some stats. Total number of career completions in the history of the NFL by coaches, zero. Total number of receptions in the history of the NFL by coaches, zero. Total number of yards in the history of the NFL by coaches, zero. Total number of touchdowns in the history of the NFL by coaches, zero. There are no secret plays, as I mentioned to Ross Tucker. There is no play-calling black magic that only certain blessed coaches possess. Chip Kelly was not touched by God. And he told you this! He admitted this! He's not pretending! Chip Kelly is not a false prophet! That's why I like him! He put it succinctly. He said... Chip Kelly said as follows, Just like every other team, we have a power run game, we play inside zone, we play outside zone. We have a three-step passing game, we have a five-step passing game, otherwise known as the West Coast offense. And, as an aside, contrary to popular belief, the West Coast offense actually does have some seven-step drop passes in it. Shallow crosses, deep ins and comebacks, sometimes seven-step drops. Anyway, Chip Kelly boiled it down for us. He said, listen, everybody runs the same stuff. There are no secret plays. This is coming from Chip Kelly, which is ironic because he's the guy that we think is this black magic coach. Has the elixir, has the, the, the magical dust that he can sprinkle onto his players and make them more productive. He said it, essentially all successful schemes and plays over the last 30 years of football have been incorporated into what he calls the Seacoast hybrid offense. You get the offense into the right play, on the fly, with up-tempo, at the line of scrimmage. 
to take advantage of what the defense is giving you and do the opposite of what the defense thinks you're going to do. That's how NFL plays are run now. Chip Kelly reminded us of this. He said, we run what the Patriots run. We run what the Colts run. We run what the Broncos run. Almost every team in the NFL now runs this Seacoast, West Coast offense. Everyone goes no huddle now. Everyone modifies their formations at the line of scrimmage now. Everyone wants to stretch out the defense. Everyone now wants to play up-tempo. It's no secrets! Furthermore, every offensive coordinator, let's take a step back. Their baseline job description is to call plays that fit the skill sets of their players. The offensive coordinator doesn't go into the GM's office and say, Hey GM, fire all these players that aren't great fits for my system. And let's, cr- let's build a whole new roster based on my hard-coded scheme. That's not reality. That's the fiction that you read in sports articles. That's not how the sausage is actually made in NFL front offices. If you have an experienced quarterback and an agile offensive line, then all the pl- you could run all your plays at a high tempo. All the player all the different plays in the playbook are at your disposal if you have an experienced quarterback and an agile offensive line. Kyle Shanahan stretch zone, that's in play. Everyone can run that because everyone has that play in their playbook. It's just that not everyone has the personnel to execute it. If you have a plodding, wheezing offensive line like the San Francisco 49ers do, or you have a terrible quarterback in Blake Bortles like the Jacksonville Jaguars do, then your play calling is necessarily more limited. And some of the plays that you're forced to call are rudimentary. You can't play at a super fast tempo. That's it. It's because of the players. It's that simple. The idea that the offensive coordinator's schemes are what drive the success of football plays is a widely held fallacy. The idea that certain players can only play in certain systems is foolish because all teams run this hybrid seacoast offense that Chip Kelly described. The system first, in quotes, coach, doesn't actually exist. As we discussed with Ross Tucker, the idea that Tevin Coleman doesn't have the vision or the patience to succeed in a zone blocking scheme is ludicrous on a number of levels. Number one, it's not true. And number two, if that were the case, they wouldn't run that scheme in the first place. They would fit the scheme around the player, not vice versa. Yet, coaches always receive a disproportionate amount of the credit when things go well, not the player. And again, sometimes they receive a disproportionate amount of the blame, but we're very fickle about that. Even though the coach isn't doing any of the real work. It's crazy to me. Think about that. The coaches have no pressure throws, no split-second spin moves, no bone-shattering collisions. Zero. And I know, I mean, I feel like I'm repeating myself that this whole conversation is tedious because what are we doing? We're parsing out how much credit to assign people playing a game for a living. 
But that's what sports analysis has devolved to in 2015. Parsing out how much credit each player and each coach should receive. But I have breaking news. The coach has very little control over the outcome. Look what happened in the Super Bowl. Pete Carroll was helpless. Russell Wilson and Malcolm Butler decided that game. Period. And speaking of Pete Carroll, football is also held captive by this widely held positive reinforcement versus negative reinforcement fallacy, which is driven by wrong-headed obsession with Pavlovian methods. Negative stimulus gets your attention. Negative reinforcement reboots the machine. Sometimes teams and individuals need negative reinforcement, but positive reinforcement is more important. It keeps you going. Positive reinforcement pushes you to the heights of achievement that you did not otherwise think possible. Positive reinforcement wins championships. Who is the greatest NFL team leader, player leader, whose leadership qualities were directly attributed to his team winning championships over the last two decades? The player's name was Ray Lewis. And how many of Ray Lewis's speeches have focused on the negative aspects of the game. Spoiler alert, zero. Because that's what great leaders do. They inspire. They do not tear down. Pete Carroll and Dick Vermeil were notorious players coaches who guided franchises out of nowhere to win their first Super Bowl championships ever. They did it with teaching. They did it with positive reinforcement. They did it with infectious enthusiasm. They did it as true coaches, not as overzealous bosses, not as bullies. Which takes us to this P. Diddy story. P. Diddy was arrested for assaulting a UCLA assistant football coach, Salalosi, the strength trainer. He assaulted him with a kettlebell, or he at least threatened him. No surprise, I side with Diddy on this. Not the bullying coach. It's our fault as a society, as people that believe in this fallacy, that believe in the almighty coach. It's our fault that we allow the Salalosis of the world to berate and bully our kids while they're playing games. I mean, it's sad. It's sad that it come, it, we have to rely on a rap mogul Finally, someone confident and privileged enough to finally stand up to a bully coach. We allow these egomaniacal bullies like Sal Alosi to treat sports like the military. And that makes me crazy. To treat 18-year-old student athletes like Navy SEALs. It's not right. Football is just merely a game. It's the farthest thing from dying to protect your country that there is in our society. I can't believe I have to say this out loud. But then you read this story in Deadspin about the tension that LeBron James has with David Blatt. The story from Kyle Wagner reads, The typical genuflection in sports to the chain of command stems mainly from puerile military metaphors. He nailed it! Thank you, Kyle! The military culture in a sports context... 
fuels this coach worship. And don't you see the absurdity in that? How can you not see the absurdity in that? LeBron James was given a stern talking to by television talking heads after it was reported that James dared to roll his eyes at David Blatt, shake his head at David Blatt during a playoff game. (gasps) No! After you read the Deadspin piece, go read what Dan Lebertard wrote on ESPN.com. Lebertard writes, A coach yells at a player, that's the job. A player yells at a coach, that's disrespectful. But only if you insist on holding on to old constructs. What if the player knows more than the coach, is more valuable, is more respected by his teammates, and is a computer like LeBron James made of fast twitch muscle fiber and making decisions better than anyone in the history of sports? LeBron knows better than David Blatt what to do. What's the problem? Why do you have a problem with the eye roll? Why do you have a problem with him shrugging his shoulders, crossing his arms? Mark Stein also wrote a piece for ESPN where he said he believes that LeBron James should be feigning deference to David Blatt. David Blatt, who is inferior to LeBron in both basketball ability and basketball intellect. LeBron should fake it because that's what the media members and and the fans expect. They expect disingenuousness. The problem is the fans don't pay to see coaches. No one in the stadium is wearing a David Blatt jersey. But I'll state it again. Coaches do matter. LeBron James and Peyton Manning can benefit from a coach seeing a different perspective. Having a trusted guide, having a sounding board in the huddle, on the practice field, that matters. But that doesn't mean the coaches should be recreating the Quantico Marine Base. It's unbelievable. What if the if the coach is inept, the players have to fake it. If the player is inept, he gets dragged off the field by the coach and the crowd cheers. They want LeBron James to feign deference, to fake the humility, to fake the obedience. Why? to preserve the fiction that the coach is in charge. To continue a charade simply because it's what the paying customers expect. Like they paid to watch some predictable cabaret show. This expectation, this permission that the media and the fans have granted to the coaches emboldens the coaches to play this role of the militaristic ideal. In the context of fun and games. Commanding and controlling as if it's the most serious sphere of society. Meanwhile, they're just administering sports teams. Sports entertainment. It's very odd to me. I think everyone would benefit from a more honest player-coach power dynamic. Honest because fans don't pay to see the coaches. And the coaches' role and the success of the team is relatively marginal compared to the player. Think about a tennis coach who exists at the, at the pleasure of the star player, whose only job is to anonymously enable the success of the star player. 
Now imagine a tennis coach calling timeout, running onto the court, and yelling at the player. That would be jarring. Coaches have slightly more important roles in team sports, I'll grant you that. But the level of importance is still marginal compared to the player. Yet, in team sports, the power dynamic is 180 degrees difference than it is in individual sports. And it's very weird. It's weird that the person making the most money, who has essentially all of the control over the organization's success and the organization's failure, and is the only person in the entire equation that the audience truly cares about, and is celebrated to the point where the people in the arena are wearing his jersey. Yet, that person is regarded as an employee, not an executive. Again, in the NFL or the NBA, if a player is inept, he gets yanked off the field and the crowd cheers. LeBron rolls his eyes, he's being disrespectful. Yet the more valuable, more important player being dismissive of the almighty coach just acting dismissively is considered rude is considered breaking decorum that's so weird why is this allowed to persist I know why because deep down many of us resent the players resent the winners of the genetic lottery who make millions playing a game we celebrate coaches because it allows us to circumvent attributing credit for performances to the actual performers that made it happen. Instead, we celebrate the frumpy, middle-aged men wearing khakis on the sideline as if they can control the outcome. And I also think there's a self-identification problem. We can't come anywhere close to seeing ourselves as Tom Brady, seeing ourselves as Rob Gronkowski. That would require too much imagination. Those guys are beyond us. But frumpy Bill Belichick, on the other hand, we can imagine roaming the sidelines in a worn-out sweatshirt as the real players tower over us. We can identify with the chess master coach using his mind and his fingers to push players around the chessboard. Just like we play board games and we play video games. Bill Belichick is football's wet dream. If you're a nerd, you flame out in college as a football player. You work your way up from the bottom, crunching the numbers, doing the nerd work. That's a hero we can identify with. Not the pretty boy who won the genetic lottery and gets to have it all, gets the championships, gets the good looks, gets the supermodel wife and Giselle, gets the millions and billions of dollars. Not billions. Maybe LeBron can make billions. Gets the mansion with a moat. We're envious and jealous, and that's a stinky cologne. That envy enables this coach-player imbalanced unearned, unfair power dynamic. And I think that to address the conflict, coaches should be employed by the players. Tom Brady and Peyton Manning deserve to be their own bosses. They bring in the money. They win the games. Not the bully coach.